One evening in 1847, in profound sadness, Pastor Henry Francis Light conducted his last service for a congregation that he had served for 24 years in Brixham, England. Light at that time had been diagnosed with tuberculosis, a disease that was fatal in those days. And as this man struggled with his own frailty and sorrow and helplessness in the face of death, he looked to the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And as he pondered on all that it meant to him, he penned these words of comfort. When all other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. Beloved, sometimes God brings us to the end of ourselves so that we will have nowhere else to turn but to him, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. And the heavenly comfort that he administers to us in all our affliction is meant to overflow into the lives of others. And so if you have been Encouraged by the words of abide with me this morning, just as countless Christians have been over the years, then join with me in praising our Heavenly Father. And let's listen to his word with the ears of faith. So please turn with me now in your copy of the scriptures to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 to 11. Second Corinthians chapter 1, 8 11. This is the word of the Lord. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Let's pray one more time. Father, we pray that you would now help us grasp the greatness of your power and your compassion so that we might lift our hearts to you in thanksgiving for the grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. Comfort us now with your presence, that we might be able to comfort one another. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Friends, what should you do when your sorrows are unbearable? When they are intolerable? When they are crushing? Unyielding? Charles Spurgeon, while preaching on the afflictions of Job, said this, O oh, dear friend, when thy grief presses thee to the very dust, worship there. When you are bowed down beneath a heavy burden of sorrow, then take to worshiping the Lord, and especially to that kind of worshiping which lies in adoring God, praising Him, and in making a full surrender of yourself to the divine will. Beloved, this is the sort of response we see in the book of Acts, don't we? In the lives of Paul and Silas after being attacked by a mob and beaten with rods and thrown into prison, what do they do? They begin to pray and sing hymns to the Lord. And what's the secret to this joy, to this, to this comfort? How exactly does the Lord comfort his afflicted saints? Well, in our text this morning, Paul tells us how the Lord comforted him when he suffered. And we are given, as it were, a glimpse into the window of Paul's own spiritual experience. So that both the Corinthians 
and us might be comforted through his apostolic word, through the words of this letter. Now you have to bear in mind that the church at Corinth had a very low view of suffering in the life of a Christian. And there were mainly two factors that were responsible for this view. Firstly, the Corinthians were greatly influenced by their culture. Their society placed a high premium on, on power and eloquent speech and self-promotion and, and prominence. Um, we're certainly familiar with that, the countries that we come from, the country that we live in likes those values. They like strength and power and dominance. Nobody likes weakness and insignificance. But all these values are antithetical to the cross. We, we learned about that in 1 Corinthians. And so what happened at Corinth is that these members started to embrace these values as their own. And one of the ways this manifested in itself in the congregation was that some members were drawn towards the more prominent and flashier spiritual gifts. They were more concerned about showcasing these gifts than using them to build up one another in love. And so this fascin fascination with, with power and prominence caused some of them to evaluate their leaders based on outward appearances and, and then divide over them. Some members even began to question the, va the, the validity of Paul's apostleship and his ministry because Paul did not quite fit the, the Corinthian model of success. Here's a second reason that the Corinthians became more convinced of this low view of suffering. And this was because certain Jewish men who called themselves apostles, but were not, men who seemed outwardly impressive by Corinthian standards, well, they came into the church and they began to turn the hearts of the Corinthians against Paul. And they said that Paul was not worthy to be called an apostle because his life was marked by suffering and shame. And so they began to take charge of the congregation over these members and they began to lord it over their faith. Now when Paul heard how bad things were at Corinth, he made a quick visit to Corinth to try and pastor this congregation that he had planted. And one of their members who had taken the side of these false apostles openly opposed Paul and grievously sinned against him while the rest of the congregation stood by and did nothing. And so as a result of this sad situation, Paul left Corinth feeling humiliated and greatly grieved. With great anguish and tears, he wrote the Corinthians a letter conveying his love for them. And in this letter, he called this wayward church to repent and be reconciled to him. Now, after many months had passed by, Titus, who delivered that letter, came back with good news that many in the congregation had repented and had once again embraced Paul as their apostle. Furthermore, they had disciplined the man who had opposed Paul. And so in response to what he, had, what he heard from Titus, Paul wrote this letter, 2 Corinthians. And in this letter, he responds to the many criticisms about his apostleship and ministry that he was hearing from the, these false apostles and from those unrepentant members. And far from being embarrassed about his suffering, Paul praises God who has good purposes for suffering, both in the lives of his true apostles and in the lives of the Corinthians who trust in his apostolic word. You see, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul's words to them are the very words of God the foundation upon which the church stands. And therefore, unity between Paul and the Corinthian church is not a secondary issue. No, it's fundamental to their existence as, the ch as a church of God. God's church is founded on the apostolic word. And as an apostle, Paul was called by Jesus Christ to not only proclaim his gospel, but also to suffer for the sake of his name. You see that in Acts 9, 15 to 16. Not only that, Paul tells us that every Christian is called to suffer as they pursue the obedience of faith in this present evil age. We know that from Philippians 1, verse 29. Paul says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also 
suffer for his sake. Beloved, our union with Christ enables us to share in Christ-like sufferings so that we might share in his glory. This is how Jesus brings many sons and daughters into his eternal kingdom through the pathway of suffering. And Paul teaches the Corinthians that to know this God through Jesus Christ is to know him as the God of all comfort, who comforts not only his true apostles, but also all his children through his word so that we might be able to comfort others. You see, this comfort is nothing other than the power of the gospel at work in the lives of his children. Biblical comfort is God in Christ acting in us by his spirit through faith in his word. When God comforts us in our suffering, he not only cheers our spirits and calms our fears, he also emboldens us in our beliefs and he empowers us to do what is God glorifying. In other words, he encourages us so that we might praise him and encourage others with the same kind of encouragement that we have received from his word. And the way that we know that God's comfort is working, that it's at work in the lives of others, is when we see others patiently enduring Christian suffering. Now, while we know that God does this, that he comforts his saints, in this passage, Paul shares with us his experience of God's comfort to him, so that we too might be encouraged and set our hope on God. So consider with me, firstly, look how God comforts us in our suffering. How God comforts us in our suffering. Look at verse eight. <clears throat> For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. See, Paul here transitions from talking about his sufferings in general to a particular trial. He speaks of the affliction we experienced in Asia. That word affliction, thlipsios, refers to that inward distress, that anguish of heart that you feel because of external circumstances or hardships. And, and the we suggests that Paul did not experience this trial by himself, but along with others. And Paul wants them, that's the Corinthians, to know about this for the sake of their comfort. He wants us to know about this for the sake of our comfort. Notice the connection between this verse and the previous verses, verses six and seven. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. Verse seven, as you share in our suffering, you will also share in our comfort, for we do not want you to be unaware. You see, the, the knowledge of this affliction and the divine comfort that Paul experienced is meant to comfort both the Corinthians and us so that we can patiently endure similar sufferings and then comfort others. Now notice he doesn't tell us what the trial was. Instead, he tells us how he felt about it. Did you notice that? By telling us how he felt, he's making us aware of how severe it was. You see, the focus is on the impact that it had on him, on Paul. Now, many have tried to figure out what exactly happened to Paul and his companions. What was this trial in Asia? Now, some think that Paul is referring to the riot at Ephesus, and that's recorded for us in Acts 19. This is when Demetrius and his fellow artisans stirred up a mob against Paul and his companions. Since Paul was preaching against idolatry, this was affecting their idol-making business. No one was buying their statues anymore. Thankfully, Paul's disciples did not permit him to go into the crowd and speak to the crowd. And then, thankfully, the town clerk dismissed the charges. After the dust settled, we're told, Paul left to Ephesus. So it doesn't sound all that bad. Now, when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he speaks of fighting beasts at Ephesus. And he also describes many adversaries. No doubt, he had troubles at Ephesus. 
But this was something that the Corinthians were aware of. However, this trial sounds like something that they were not entirely familiar with. Furthermore, why doesn't Paul just say the affliction that we experienced in Ephesus instead of saying Asia? You see, the, the way he describes what he felt about this trial seems to indicate that this particular problem was far more daunting. Given all that we know, it seems like this incident happened after Paul's painful visit to the Corinthians. So, in a nutshell, we can't be sure about what really happened. But if you look at the text, it's clear that Paul has no desire to give us specifics. The comfort he received now enables him to comfort those who are in any affliction. Notice how he describes his distress, this affliction. Verse 8, for we were so utterly burdened. They were weighed down because of all that was going on. They were downcast. Ever feel like that? Ever had one of those days when you're trying to please the Lord in every way, you're striving to be faithful, and everything seems to be working against you? Paul says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Friends, this is what you would hear from someone who can't take it anymore. I can't take it anymore. This was beyond my ability, says Paul. This was an extraordinary and extremely stressful situation that caused Paul to literally fall apart. We despaired of life itself. And you know what that means. It means that he felt like he was dying. And friends, when, when life feels like death because of your hardships, when just getting out of bed means that life is going to punch you in the gut and knock you down, and that's what you have, that's what you've got to look forward to, there's nothing you can do. You've reached the end of your rope. We know that Paul's despair was a deathly despair because of the next verse. Look at verse 9. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. See, Paul wasn't in prison waiting to be executed. But this trial was so disheartening and insurmountable that he felt, along with his co-workers, they felt that what they were experiencing was tantamount or comparable to death itself. Again, we don't know what happened. This could have been any number of things. I mean, just, just look at the extent of his sufferings in, in 2 Corinthians. Chapter 6, verse 4. Hardships. Can you think of a more vague term? Hardships. That could be anything. Calamities. Beatings. Imprisonments. Riots. Labors. Sleepless nights. Hunger. Or take chapter 11. Verses 23 to 28, stonings, lashes, shipwreck. And then he talks about his stress. The stress of just being in danger from rivers. Think about that. In danger, the river is dangerous. I'm stressed. From robbers, in danger from robbers, Jews, Gentiles, the wilderness, the sea. False Christians, cold and exposure, and the pressure of caring for the churches. Now, on top of that, think about the, the compounding of this. We know that Paul suffered for the sake of Christ and the gospel everywhere he went. Now, he had been rejected by the Corinthians, rejected by his own, wounded by his own, opposed by these false apostles. And after all of this, he faced this anguish, no wonder it felt like a death sentence. 
the NASB and the New King James make it very clear that this was what Paul felt internally. We had this sentence of death in ourselves. Friends, this is unbearable for Paul, and yet he's not ashamed. Listen carefully. He's not ashamed to tell us how he felt. Now, I know all of you well enough to know that many of you are facing all kinds of hardships to varying degrees. I want to ask you, how do those trials make you feel? Well, Paul tells us how he felt, doesn't he? He's not thinking, oh, I'm the great apostle Paul. Therefore, I cannot let my people know that at times I fall apart. No, he honestly tells us. He's not telling us this because he wants to lie down on a psychologist's couch, on a therapist's chair, and be affirmed. This is not a me-centered approach to emotional truthfulness. No, he is telling us this because he wants to make much of God. He wants to glorify Christ. And just as he received God's encouragement himself, he wants to minister comfort to others. This is a God-centered approach to emotional truthfulness. Paul acknowledges that God was sovereign over what he was feeling. And God the Father of Jesus Christ and the Father of mercies, the one who could do no wrong, intended this affliction for Paul's good. Whatever this trial was, God's purposes for Paul and his companion were good and merciful. Brothers and sisters, whatever you may feel about your trial, remember the goodness and the mercy of God. Look to the cross where his compassions never fail. Remember that he is the source of all comfort. Look at the next verse. He writes, we felt like we were dying. Or as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4.16, our outer self is wasting away, he says. Our bodies, our minds, our emotions, all that belongs to this present age And you might wonder, why did the Lord providentially order that trial? So that they would despair of life itself. The answer is in the next verse. Look at verse 9. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So two reasons why God did this, says Paul. Number one, so that we would stop relying on ourselves so that we would stop trusting in our own strength and abilities and plans and skills and strategies. Now, this might sound shocking to some of you that some of the apostles, including the apostle Paul, were at times relying on themselves. And crushing difficulties are God's way of saying to us, because I love you. Because I am committed to preserving your faith and making you holy, I will ordain these trials in order to make you realize that you can't do what I've asked you to do in your own strength. Friends, burdensome trials and the internal anguish that accompanies those trials, they are for our sanctification. They are meant to transform us. Now, some of you want to be able to talk about your emotional distress, but you do not want to receive the counsel comfort of your brothers and sisters who point out your self-centeredness and self-reliance. But that's the whole point of the verse, isn't it? If you're unwilling to see that or receive that in your suffering, you can't receive true gospel comfort. Here's the second reason why God puts his people through this kind of despair. One, he wants to wean us off self-reliance. Reason number two, so that we might rely on God who raises the dead. And friends, here we come to the heart 
We come to the mechanism. This is how God works in us to comfort us. God brings us to the end of ourselves so that we will have no other recourse but to say, God, help me. Help me. Raise me up from my deathly despair and sorrow. Have you ever had a well-meaning friend tell you in the midst of your troubles that God will never give you more than what you can handle? Have you heard that? Not according to the verse. It's not true. Very often he will give you more than you can bear. You know, according to that popular cliche, what determines the amount of suffering? God will never give you more than you can handle. What determines the amount of suffering? You do. You determine it. Your strength and your ability determines the extent of what you can handle. Therefore, who should get the credit for handling the suffering God gives you? You should. You get the credit. See, this is a very man-centered approach to Christian suffering. But God ordains our trials so that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. When the world looks at the suffering of a non-Christian, what do they say? Oh, the sheer determination of the human spirit. Good job. Kudos. No one's glorifying God. But God does it. He brings us to the end of ourselves. So that we would depend on the one who raises the dead. Beloved, God can do that. Because he is God. Raising the dead is what he does. He raised Jesus from physical death. And he can raise you from deathly despair. And that should not surprise us that God can raise the dead. Acts 26 verse 8, Paul says to King Agrippa, Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? He's God. Deuteronomy 32 verse 39, See now that I, even I, am He, says God, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. See, throughout this letter, Paul speaks of his sufferings and his inner anguish that accompanies his sufferings as death. And he speaks of the Lord's comfort at work in him and through him in the lives of others as life. Life brought about by the resurrection power of God. So look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 11 to 12. Just skip ahead a few chapters. Chapter 4, 11 to 12. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. See, according to Paul, Christian suffering is like or tantamount to the cross. It's a figurative death of sorts that we experience. And Christian comfort, God's encouragement, that enables us to endure and spiritually thrive is tantamount to a resurrection. A powerful work of the Spirit that sustains our faith and causes us to endure. Beloved, I want you to, to see and grasp the glory of Christ's resurrection in the life of a believer. Now, when we think about Jesus' resurrection, we often think about how it benefited us in the past. And then we think about how it will benefit us in the future. But we're not united to things Jesus did in the past or to things he will accomplish in the future. We're united to him. We're united to Christ himself in him. We have been, been given new hearts through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This happened in the past at the time of our conversion. 1 Peter 1.3, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then we also know that when Jesus comes back, he will cause all the dead in Christ to rise from the dead and give us glorified resurrection bodies. 
That's in 1 Corinthians 15, 22 to 23. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. That's in the future. That's our blessed hope. But those are great moments, aren't they? Past and future. Easter and the second coming. That's great. But what about now? What about these everyday moments when we go through trials of various kinds? Brothers, the God who raises the dead, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is not far from us. He is not removed from our sufferings. His resurrection power is available to those who rely on Him and call on Him for comfort. This power is available to us for not just regeneration, and not just for our future resurrection, not just for overcoming sin, but it's also available to us when we are in the deathly pits of despair and sorrow and grief. For as we share in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort, says Paul. As we share in these cross-like deathly afflictions, so we will also share in resurrection-like comforts that lifts us out of despair and gives us peace and endurance and joy and hope. You know, that great 4th century preacher John Chrysostom once wrote, when God raises up a man whose life is despaired of and who has been brought to the very gates of hell, he shows nothing other than a resurrection, snatching from the very jaws of death the one who had fallen into them. Isn't that interesting? Now think about this. Why does God do this? Or a better question. Why does he do it in this way? Why this pattern? Why does he bring us to the end of ourselves before he comforts us? And friends, the answer to that is because he is the God of the gospel. He is the God of the gospel. Think about the gospel. Let's think biblically together. What is man's fundamental problem? That we are self-reliant. This godless self-sufficiency is part of our very sin nature. And it is self-destructive. Because the moment we decide that we can be who we are apart from God, we can do what we want apart from God's word, we start traveling down the road of destruction, which only ends one way. Condemnation and eternal death under God's holy judgment. But the good news of the gospel is that God does not leave us to our own self-sufficiency and self-reliance. But he enters into our proud and rebellious world in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who is the word made flesh, or as John says, the word of life made manifest. And how does Jesus restore us? and reconcile us to God and save us from eternal death? How does he give us eternal life as a gift of grace through faith in him? Life is given through death, his death. Friends, Jesus suffered in great pain and anguish and he died on the cross, taking our sins upon himself so that we might receive the forgiveness of sins and eternal life through his resurrection. He did this for all who would repent and believe in him. You see, the gospel tells you, don't rely on yourself. Instead, forsake yourself. Don't justify yourself. Instead, confess that you're a sinner, poor and needy and helpless and in need of a savior. The gospel says, don't try and make terms or bargain with God. Hide nothing. Justify nothing. Excuse nothing. Agree with God that you deserve his just wrath and you deserve that sentence of death. Cast yourself on the saving work of Jesus Christ who not only died for sinners but also rose again from death to newness of life. And when you do that, when you cast yourself on God's grace to save you and make you alive, then through the hearing of that gospel message, the God who raised Jesus from the dead causes you to be born again and trust in Christ alone. As A.W. Tozer once wrote, 
in coming to Christ, we do not bring our old life onto a higher plane. We leave it at the cross. The grain of wheat must fall into the ground and die. God offers life, but not an improved old life. The life he offers is life out of death. The life he offers is life out of death. It always stands on the far side of the cross. Our old selves must be crucified with him so that we might live with him. Or as Romans 6, 3-4 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Friends, the good news of the gospel is God gives life out of death. He gives life out of death and he does it through Christ. Now, because we've been united to Christ, we share in his sufferings in order that we might share in his comfort. Why am I telling you all of this? Because when God brings us to the end of ourselves, in our sufferings, tantamount to a death, so that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead, when we suffer in this way, and God comforts us in this way by seeing this pattern of death and resurrection in our lives, people will get to see not human determination, but they'll get to see the God of the gospel at work in our lives. That's why God does it in that way. You see, this is how the Lord comforted Paul. And this is how he comforts his people through his word. And that brings us to our second point. Consider how God now fills us with hope. Look at verse 10. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Now when Paul says God delivered us from such a deadly peril, he's talking about that affliction in Asia. God rescued us from such a desperate situation and he will deliver us again, he says. You see, for Paul, God's comfort to him in his past afflictions gives him assurance that God will do the same in the future. And friends, that should give us assurance. You see, God is the one that Paul and his friends had set their hope on. Now, Paul has already stated that God will deliver us. That's the future. Paul is confident that as long as he is alive, God will preserve his soul. He will comfort him and rescue him from the pits of despair. But what's this hope in the text that he will deliver us again? See, Paul here is talking about the eschatological future. He's talking about the actual bodily resurrection of believers from the dead when Christ returns. Now, this is important. This is important because if the Lord in his wisdom may see it fit to not deliver you from your trial and it may lead to your actual death, even if it does, we have a great promise, don't we? A promise that comforts us that when Christ returns, we will be resurrected. John eleven twenty five, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. You see, we can die in hope having received this comfort. Whatever happens, God's deliverance is assured. He will come through for us. You see, in Paul's mind, the comfort that we receive from God in our afflictions, when we put our faith in the God who raises the dead, that comfort is nothing but a foretaste of our bodily resurrection from the dead. It's a foretaste of that great deliverance. And this is why Paul can say, on God we have set our hope. Beloved, this encouragement from God in our misery, when all other helpers have failed, this truth that we belong to Christ whose resurrection power works in those who believe, these wonderful gospel words of promise that other members use to comfort you, this strengthens our hope. See, Paul tells us in 
Romans 5, 3 to 4, that this is why we can rejoice in our sufferings. We don't glorify sufferings, right? If you have cancer and you're jumping around saying, whoa, I have cancer, there's something seriously wrong with you. We don't glorify sufferings, but we can rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Friends, ours is a hope that triumphs over suffering by raising us from the depths of despair and preserving our very souls. And ours is a hope that will finally resurrect us from the dead. God comforts us in all our afflictions. <clears throat> now, I know I said this last week, but I'll say it again. Christian suffering is very broad in its scope. That's the way the Bible depicts it. We face trials of various kinds. And fundamentally, what makes suffering, Christian suffering, is that it is a Christian who is suffering. You're suffering as a Christian for righteousness sake, for trusting in Jesus. It comes in the path of ordinary faith-filled obedience. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 15 to 16, let no one suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. So don't do sinful things, suffer the consequences and call it Christian or Christ-like suffering. I committed adultery, my wife left me, I'm sharing in Christ's sufferings. No, you're not. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, says Peter, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Christian suffering is a call for us to glorify God in our suffering, to make much of him. And so we as Christians experience suffering because of five reasons. Number one, God has called us to it. God has put enmity between believers and unbelievers. That's Genesis 3. The very fact that God chose you out of this world and called you to himself in Christ, that's sufficient reason for the world to hate you. Nobody hates me. Well, just give it a little time. John 15, verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. What's the reason for the world's hatred there? God's election. Reason number two, we live in a fallen world that is under a curse and we will face hardships and calamities and illnesses and hurricanes and earthquakes and floods and unjust and corrupt governments. Now, all these things are, are common to both Christians and non-Christians alike, but nevertheless, these things make the pursuit of faithful obedience and Christian ministry hard, don't they? And therefore, they can be experienced as Christian suffering. Number three, we suffer when we are opposed and resisted and persecuted for our beliefs and for preaching the gospel. Number four, we suffer for righteousness sake, for doing what pleases Christ in a world that hates him. And then finally, number five, which is the emphasis of this book, we suffer because of the particular challenges of Christian ministry, of service to the saints. Ministry in and of itself is not suffering. It's a privilege. But there will be suffering in ministry. There'll be disappointments, discouragements, slander, harsh words, emotional weight and strain of caring for many people the grief when people reject your counsel, and much more. Friends, the reason I'm repeating some of this is that I really want you to grasp this, understand this, or you won't understand this letter or the scope of Paul's suffering. And yet in all his trials, whether physical pain or emotional anguish and distress, or both, Paul experienced God's comfort. And friend, if you're not a Christian, I want to invite you this morning to know this God of comfort. 
He is the one true God. A great and mighty God, but He is not far off from us. He entered into our world of sufferings by taking on human flesh and coming in the person of Jesus Christ, His Son. Come to Him. Turn away from your self-reliance and your rebellion. Repent of your sins and put your trust in Him. And you will receive the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Without Him, your sufferings will have no meaning. Martin Luther once said, when non-Christians run into affliction and suffering, they have nothing to comfort them. For they do not have the mighty promises and the confidence in God which Christians have. Therefore, they cannot comfort themselves with the assurance that God will help them to bear the affliction. Much less can they count on it that He will turn their affliction and suffering to good. There is a special component to sufferings for the Christian. Not only has Christ made their suffering holy, but there is also special hope. There is the hope that points to this work of God, this work which conforms us to the image of Jesus. This work points us to God's own words and promises to overcome the world and the evil one. This work draws us to eternal hope. There is hope in who this God is as the Almighty One who loves us and cares for us. End quote. You see, Paul in this text wants to tell us that what God did in his life when he was afflicted in Asia was nothing other than that same faithfulness and power of God that was portrayed in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God comforted Paul and Paul comforted the Corinthians through his word. Beloved, because of this, we ought to receive the comfort of God's word and comfort one another. This is what God has called His saints to do in a local church. And that brings us to our third and final point. Consider how God gives us the privilege of participating in this ministry of comfort. Look at verse 11. In light of what God has done, here is what the Corinthians must do. Verse 11. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Paul says, you also must help us. How? By praying for us. By praying for us as we look to God in our sufferings. Beloved, our prayers are an expression of our dependency on God who raises the dead. And God uses our requests, our pleas, our supplications as a means through which He acts to encourage his suffering children. See, God in his wisdom has linked his acts of deliverance to your prayers. Why does he do this? So that when his suffering people are comforted, that's the blessing or the charisma or the grace God shows to us in Christ by pulling us out of the pit of despair, when he grants that blessing by answering our prayers, we can give him thanks. We can give Him thanks, thus glorifying Him. So let me ask you this. Do you know the sorrows and the griefs of one another? And if you don't, why don't you have those kinds of relationships in this congregation? Beloved, this is what God has called you to do as members in His body to bear one another's burdens, and to pray that those who suffer would be spiritually strengthened by the God who raises the dead. See, God is glorified when we express our helplessness and cry out to Him. And He delights to answer our prayer as a father delights to hear his children. God is near to the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. And He is glorified even more when we give Him thanks for answering those prayers. So do you hear the Savior saying to you this morning that your strength indeed is small? Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me your all in all.
You know, the great apostle Paul says that he needs the help of the saints through their prayers so that he can minister to others. And I think we ought to take a hint. No one is meant to be a solo minister or a solo Christian. No one is meant to suffer alone. Even if you are locked up in prison, you are being helped through the prayers of the saints. As Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. Friends, our fellowship is not just a fellowship of the word, but a fellowship of Christ-like sufferers. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, what could be a better picture? Think about this. What could be a better picture of a reconciled church to their apostle than members of that church praying for each other, praying for Paul and thanking God for answered prayer? That's what Paul hopes. That's what he's doing here. Beloved, when you are utterly burdened beyond your strength, don't lose heart. Call on your Savior. Wait on Him. Recruit the prayers of the saints. Don't let your feelings that, that ebb and flow be your guide. But keep your feet firmly planted on Christ, our rock and our refuge. Trust in the God who raises the dead and he will lift you out of despair. The God of all comfort will supply all that you need. As Spurgeon said, when your grief presses you to the very dust, worship there. Worship there. Let's pray. O God of all comfort, our Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would now minister to the heartaches of your people, Heal the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. Lift the weary from despair, O Lord, for you are the God of the resurrection. And we call on you that you would be glorified in the lives of your children. Teach us the joy of trusting in you, that we might sing with joy even in our afflictions. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.